and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a screen girl. As precincts across Allegheny County reported votes, we knew it was going to be a big election night for Democrats. With upward of 1.2 million people, this is Pennsylvania's second largest county. Now, for listeners just getting familiar with PA, this is where Pittsburgh is. Allegheny County is also the home county of Senator-elect John Fetterman and Lieutenant Governor-elect Austin Davis. This January, the county is not only sending two new members of Congress to Washington, but also new members of the State House, who arguably handed the Democrats the majority. We're sitting down with Ben Forstate, who managed the campaign of one of those new state reps, Dr. Arvind Venkat. Now, Ben's maps are well known to Pennsylvania politicos. I highly recommend them. They help to graphically demonstrate and splice data each election cycle. Dr. Venkat will make history as the first ER doc in the legislature and the first Indian American in the state house. So we're going to talk not only about this historic race, but broader trends that are happening up in the North Hills. Ben Forstate, welcome to my kitchen table. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being deep in the trenches of Allegheny County politics in recent weeks, but uh, also uh, in recent years. And I-, I was really looking forward to sitting down with you for so many reasons. Number one, I'm from the lesser half of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm not from Allegheny County or the Pittsburgh media market. Uh, but and number two, we, can, we, can't, we can't all be perfect. But number two, I, I just think the story of the campaign that you managed is the story of Democratic organizing in Allegheny County in recent years. And I just think there's just fascinating trends that the data points to in um, uh, this cycle, but then uh, uh, also in previous cycles and all this with an eye to uh, what might be cooking in the Allegheny County election uh, or the executive uh, election next uh, next year. So with that, before we even plunge in, folks uh, hopefully know who you are because you're just incredible on on Twitter, but give a little about your background. Sure. So yeah, I am on Twitter. Um, I try when I can to make maps, but I I think I like just tracking Pennsylvania data and where that will point to in future about our politics, where we where we've been and where we're going. I think a lot of that can be spelled out in demographic and registration data. And that definitely led me to working and organizing in politics around Allegheny County. I have knocked a lot of doors in service of that goal. Are you, you're born and raised out in Allegheny County? I am born and raised in Allegheny County, although my parents are not. My mom is from Wilkes-Barre. My dad is from Punxsutawney. And then I was born and raised in uh, like the Fox Chapel School District. Gotcha. So we are going to talk in pretty granular detail about the North Hills. And the Statehouse District, I guess, is largely McCandless and kind of suburbs right. north and northwest of the city of Pittsburgh. Just remind listeners, because I'm just consistently astounded by the diversity of listeners from all over our country and even in Europe. I think people wrongfully just say they say Philadelphia and then it's Philadelphia County and they forget that the city of Pittsburgh is just one of dozens and dozens of municipalities in Allegheny County. So you could speak to the diversity of the county. Sure. So the city of Pittsburgh is one of 130 municipalities in Allegheny County where I think one of, if not the most fragmented metropolitan areas. And what that means is that there's 
there's a lot of different, very small communities, very close to each other. So the North Hills includes all the communities north of the Allegheny and Ohio rivers. That's like the broadest definition. And traditionally, that was like the most uh, Republican leaning portion of the county. It was the least developed until uh, I think I-79 was punched through the North Hills into the 1980s. And then it just exploded. That's where most of the population growth has happened in the county. Certainly, there are other, you know, affluent suburbs south of the city, like Upper St. Clair, and then west of the city, but you have a whole concentration of affluent suburbs north of the city, but also some definitely white working class areas. The Allegheny Valley was the most democratic portion of the county or among the most democratic portions of the county until very recently. Now, a lot of a lot of that has started to shift to um, suburbs like McCandless, Ross, Franklin Park, areas that Democrats traditionally never really ventured. So then also just remind listeners, uh, just give folks a sense and apologies for all our many Pittsburgh listeners, but these are folks commuting in. Yes. When we largely stereotype the North Hills, they're commuting into the city of Pittsburgh or there's office parks. I mean, is this kind of McMansions, any suburb USA or... I mean, it's kind of in between those two, right? You have some, you have some, definitely have some older areas that were on interurban lines, a few of them, um, up through to Harmony in Beaver, but you, you're kind of caught between Cranberry and the office parks up there and then downtown. So people are commuting in both directions from the suburbs I was working in. If you go up towards the Allegheny Valley, those are definitely more Pittsburgh and even Oakland specific. A lot of people commuting into the universities out that way and in the the western portion or yeah the quaker valley which is swickley in some of those areas you have folks commuting um down to washington county to work in natural gas or out to the airport okay once again thank you pittsburgh area listeners for your patience we've, we've set the scene a bit but uh ben tell folks um i mean how how did you get involved in, in politics let's be honest uh most folks hate politics the listeners of the show uh don't but i um, mean you're deeply deeply immersed in the weeds of allegheny county politics so was there sure. a, a watershed moment in a previous election or a spark went off or has this been since childhood uh, no, it's not. My family wasn't political. I was working in advertising until 2018. And uh, there was a state house race that covered uh, my hometown. It was the old version of the district I current. I just worked in HD 30. It became open and they were looking for people to volunteer. I happened to have some free time and I just jumped in. Afterwards, I wanted to continue to work in politics. Uh, I really didn't have any political connection. So I started to make maps and put them on Twitter. And one thing went from there and I did paid canvassing. And from paid canvassing, I managed other paid canvassers. And then, you know, I started to get involved in campaigns. And now I'm on state committee and I just managed a campaign. So, you know, I'm in deep now. So I I knew nothing about software and technology, uh, but these maps are incredibly insightful. What is the, uh, well, I'm, maybe you don't want to give away your secret sauce, but I mean, how are you generating uh, these? Inc- I mean, they just think they illustrate and tell the story uh, each election season. So QGIS, it's a free software. ArcGIS is like kind of a standard mapping software. It's um, to help getting this right. It's geographic information systems. I was a geography major in undergrad, and I never thought it would be uh, useful to my career. I wasn't intending to go into that. And then Lo and behold, I'm making maps. Um, had I known 
how difficult sometimes it is to make maps of Pennsylvania specifically, just because of how our Commonwealth deals with uh, electoral data. I probably would not have gotten started, but here we are. But you can't stop now. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah I really great, can't. I'm just that you've uh, carved out. All right, well, so let's let's uh, start to unpackage. As you alluded to, it's the thirtieth uh, district. I think this was a district that uh, was absolutely affected by the line changes. Just to set the scene for listeners outside of all our Harrisburg insiders, the Republican majority going into this election was 111 seats to 92 seats, and Democrats now have uh, control, first time in uh, a significant uh, amount of time, and that's directly because of this seat and a handful of seats just like it. So let's take a step back. When, when, when did you come on board to become the manager for this statehouse seat? So I came on board in February, but I've been kind of working within the district for the past, over the past two years, I managed the school board elections for North Allegheny School District, which covers about 70% of this district and was entirely within the old version of the 28th House District, which was represented by Mike Terzai and was like a pretty strong Republican stronghold. I worked there in 2021 managing the school board races, and we did well in the area for a rough year. Um, we want Democrats won the vote overall. And I think that made it a lot easier for a lot of people to begin to look at this seat when redistricting came up as a, one that could be competitive and one that Democrats, a Democrat could flip. You know, no Democrat has ever represented uh, McCandless in the state house since we moved to single member districts in the late 1960s. So let's, we're going to touch on your really history making candidate and his background in a moment, but take a step back. Sure. You know, we hear all across Pennsylvania and the, the months after the 2016 election of grassroots organizing just popping up in these indivisible groups and others, you know, give, give folks a sense. You mentioned that you're on state committee. I mean, what at a super local level, what, what, what was the democratic infrastructure or what is the democratic infrastructure? That you starting in February were, uh, you know, what, what were the the players on the field, so to speak? So that's it's really interesting. I would say in the North Hills specifically, because it had been Republican so long, there wasn't a lot of Democratic infrastructure. There were some committees, local committees, and in Pennsylvania, you know, each municipality has its own committee. Each of the precincts will have two committee people. There will be a chair and other you know, exec members. But in a lot of cases, those were, you know, moribund or frankly defunct. After starting in 2017 and then moving into the 2018 elections, a lot of people began to filter back into the committees and rebuild that infrastructure. And I think it's like taken a few cycles for each of these committees to start to catch up and begin for, you know, some of the results of all of that organizing to show. So when I started in February, and frankly, when I started on the school board race, you had a lot of very strong local committees in McCandless, in Franklin Park, in um, Ben Avonborough, which is a part of this district. And these are people who had been doing work to get to know their neighbors, to elect folks to local offices and school boards and really did want to win, even if it was going to be a tough year. We thought it was going to be a tough year for Democrats overall. They really were wanting to put in the work and, you know, continue to push push the boulder forward. 
So we had a um, an episode all about petitions, and it was right oh, yeah. around February. So maybe I'm putting two and two together, but is this the reason you began in February to begin the arduous process of getting uh, your candidate on the ballot? Oh, yeah. We began in February with petitions. We did not know if it was going to be a contested race until the petitions. So, you know, we were working with we were working with our local volunteers to make sure everything we had everything, um, you know, squared away to begin. It ended up not being a contested race, which was nice. But you mean, you mean uh, a primary race. Yes. Yeah, sorry. A contested primary gotcha. race, which was great. Gave us more time to, you know, focus on raising money and building the infrastructure for what we thought was going to be a rough campaign in the fall. I think one of the things that was true starting in February is, and this is true for all of the races that I've worked with or on, is that everybody assumed that this was going to be a difficult year and we're we're doing everything they could to position themselves and to work with our volunteers to figure out how we were going to, you know, beat back what could be a red wave. Okay, so let's let's definitely take a look at fundraising plan and then certainly building out uh, the field operation and a committed volunteer base. But it, we've been building some suspense. We got to talk a little about the candidate who's uh, now state representative elect, yeah. first uh, South Asian member of the state house. Let's be honest, there's not a lot of physicians in the state house no. uh, historically. So why does a successful ER doc just completely put his life on hold and say, I'm going to get into one of the hottest congr- uh, state house races in Pennsylvania. That like that some speech is kind of seared in my mind at this point. So Dr. Venkit Arvind would be the first ER doc in the general assembly since the sixties. He's going to be one of the first South Asian members along with uh, Tariq Khan in Philadelphia and the first Indian American to ever serve in the state house. And he will also be one of the first state reps to flip a seat in west of the Susquehanna since 2006, along with Mandy Steele. So what he says is that, you know, he was deeply involved with talking about COVID on the news. He did a local news segment for about the last three years and just saw how unprepared we were to deal with the impact of COVID, how we had to shut down all of our local services, and that he, as an ER doc, um, as you know, someone who was deeply involved with the community, was in a position to do something about that and wanted to jump in. You know, it's, I think it's, that- it's, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, uh, with a young family, with if we think everything that ER doctors have seen. Well, really, in any given week, but certainly over the last three years of American history, uh, it would be completely understandable if he wanted to spend time. I know. Vacation I mean, I with just his family in the summer of uh, 2022 and not, you know, hitting the doors. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely would be understandable. I just think that all the experiences, everything that happened to him really just motivated him to get involved. Like I said, there, there were, haven't been any doctors in our general assembly since the 1960s. So I think it was important for him to have someone with medical expertise advocating for best practices. He, one of the things he mentions is that we is that prior in the lead up to the pandemic, we had always been talking about preparedness, but we're not truly prepared. 
you know, all of the services that our communities depend on. So fire, police, EMS, we all, <laughs> we were all running them at the ragged edge. And because of that, we had to essentially shut society down, which was horrible for everyone involved. And as a doctor, he's in a unique position to advocate for those resource, resources. So when, I mean, at, at what point did, did you guys meet? Uh, was Dr. Venkat kind of uh, active in the school board races you mentioned or democratic organizing or? Oh, he was, he's definitely watching. I was introduced to him by the McCandless Democratic Committee after the school board race. You know, I think he had been watching. He knew it was a tough year for school boards. We, in the primary, the, there was four candidates running that year and they lost the primary by about 10 points collectively and then won. So we did a 10 point swing and was impressed by that. Um, and I think it gave him some sort some confidence that, you know, Democrats could run in the North Hills in McCandless and win even under rough conditions. And so I was introduced to him by the committee and we started the chat and I, I've always been advocating for this area for like Wexford, the communities in Franklin Park as kind of the future for democratic politics in Allegheny County. It was actually this district, the old version, the 28th was one of the first districts I mapped when I was on Twitter as one that swung pretty, had a huge swing towards Democrats between like 2016 and 2018 and, you know, thought with more attention, we could get a state rep. So I was excited that someone, um, you know, with Arvin's background will be running at it. He was a great, he was a great fit for the district. Just clarify for listeners. So when you're looking at 2016 data, 2018 data, you're looking at voter registration numbers or performance numbers, or you're looking no, at certain congressional races or statewide races. What, what it, it really, it is. A, yeah, that's a great question. It's really a holistic assessment. So the first thing I look at is just top line swings, right? What are, what is the congressional candidate doing between 2016 and 20, you know, 2018 or 2020? What is the, um, state house candidates? If, if it's a composite, are all those swings moving in the same direction? And then under the underlying data is registration data. We're a closed primary state, which means that our registration data tends to be a pretty good proxy for at least a direction that a municipality is moving in. And all the municipalities in that area were trending fairly rapidly towards Democrats, sometimes like three to four points a year. It, during the Trump era, McCandless flipped to plurality Democratic registration in 2021. Franklin Park is on the verge of flipping. And these were areas that were as recently as 2016 uh, uh, had a 16-point re Republican advantage. So, you know, the trends, the top line trends just among data candidates, Democrats doing better there year after year, plus the underlying data suggested that it was ripe for flipping. So Dr. Venkat gets in the race, but I assume is, you know, still uh, has a full-time job commuting into the city and seeing patients and has a young family. So as you're kind of building out the schedule, building out uh, your team energizing volunteers, you know, give listeners a sense of uh, what the spring and summer were, uh, were looking like. Because it's always interesting with first-time candidates, right? I mean, they have the ideas maybe from the movies uh, of what sure. it looks like, and then it gets, you know, it gets pretty yeah. tedious. Yeah, especially a state house campaign. You know, you, so with our campaign, I think that Arvind really had, Arvind is a very thoughtful 
person and he's a great person to work for. He kind of anticipated that we would need to raise a lot of money um, and had been priming his network for some time. He was the head of, I think, the PA Emergency Doctors Medical Association. I, I hope I'm getting that right. I really should know at this point, but prior to that, had made a lot of contacts. And um, like the other nice thing about being an ER doctor, specifically with campaigns, it's almost shift-based worked, right? So there's a lot of flexibility when he could schedule shifts around when we would be doing campaign work versus when we'd be when he needed to spend time with his family. So if you're going to run for office as a doctor, I think an ER doctor is actually one of the better specialties to do that with. So, you know, moving backwards, I think the first thing we did was talk about fundraising, what we would need to do specifically for this seat. And if we really wanted to have a great shot of flipping it, you know, between his network, knowing a lot of ER doctors, uh, we were able to raise quite a lot of money very quickly, over $400,000, which is huge for That's a state, huge house. state house race. Yes. Now, some listeners definitely know, uh, dare I say painfully know, that there's no giving limits. There is not. Others might be surprised by that. So as you guys were mining uh, his personal Rolodex, I mean, were you going after donors at all different categories? Yep. We were, we Rolodexed him and he went through and asked people, I, I, he had a formula for asks um, that was you know pretty successful. We were able to raise a lot of that money quickly. And that really did prove to be like a foundation for people to pay attention to this district, to this area of the state, even though the district had gotten better in redistricting. If you looked at the top line numbers, I think they gave us, you know, we were a D plus one district. Um, It was a district that Trump had won in 2016 by about five points that Joe Biden had won by six, but that down ballot Democrats had not done as well in um, I think the composite state house score was R plus four. So, now with, so that- with, with the money, I, I do want to get to the Republican dynamics and your opponent in a moment. With sure. the money, one of the unwritten or l- l- largely untold stories of this cycle is the amount of national attention. Um, and I think they deliberately did it under the radar, but national attention that these hot Pennsylvania state house races got. And we did have an episode with the leadership of Forward Majority and is organizations like this that focus like a laser. So I'm curious if there was outside money with organizations you couldn't coordinate with, uh, and then also just outside of his Rolodex, you know, as this race picked up momentum, if you were just getting checks in your PO box or on your Act Blue account. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like what I was saying is that to, I think there was some skepticism about the seat despite redistricting and putting that money on the board quickly, I think made helped people pay attention and like know that we were going to take a really serious shot at this. Um, Arvind said that repeatedly to everyone that he was not going to run again in two years. Like this was the chance to do this. And I think, you know, it helped outside organizations get involved in this district to see all the work we were putting in with fundraising. And, you know, there were checks by the end, coming it just coming into our mailbox. Um, there was support from outside organizations. There was support from the caucus. There was support from unions. Um, people want to get involved in these seats when you're putting in the work. And I think part of the goal, you know, what I always said is we are going to make sure that people know that this is a good district to invest in, that we are putting in the work and that their money will be spent 
like responsively and then like in service of flipping the seat and helping Democrats up and down the ballot. Seems like ages ago now, but after President Biden visited uh, the region on on Labor Day, uh, we sat down with the head of the Central Labor Council. I'm just because you mentioned unions. I'm curious uh, to you know how many union households are in these suburbs. Uh, to what extent were they helping with your field program? They helped quite a bit. We worked, you know, as much as as much as we could with the unions to you know on our field program. They were doing you know labor to labor outreach. We were at, there were canvas launches, quite a few of them. The district, I think, is about 15%, 12 to 15% unions. I could be getting that number wrong, but it skewed heavily towards teachers. The steelworkers were also big, but I think it was, you know, some of the other fields that they have unionized within teachers and some like unionized nurses as well. So let's kind of stick in the post Labor Day final 60 uh, someday sprint. Yeah, obviously you guys are running an incredible campaign if you're bringing in that kind of money, building the coalition, keeping a first-time candidate on track. But like in a campaign, you also need to react to what your opponent is doing. So share with folks a little about her. Uh, You mentioned a preceding state house member who was in leadership and got himself even national attention, Mike Terzai. But give a sense to the extent she had a window of what was going on on the other side. So our opponent was uh, Cindy Kirk, who was a county council member and was had been involved in local politics in McCandless for quite some time. Um, I think her husband was the head of the McCandless Republicans, and he was on town council, and they were just relatively well known. I think you know their theory of the case was that it was going to be a good year for Republicans, that Cindy Kirk was well known in McCandless and was a nurse as well. So in some ways had a background that neutralized some of Arvin's. And I think that they thought, they assumed because, you know, that had been kind of a dynamic in local races in Western PA that they, you know, you would run a hometown candidate, someone who had been there forever, and they would talk about how they'd been there forever, and everyone else had been there forever, and they knew everybody that that would be the dynamic that won the day in our leading year. So one of the things that we talked about really, you know, was probably the guiding principle for our campaign is that we would keep keep it local and be out there engaging with and meeting as many people as possible. And what that meant was doing everything we could to free up time for Arvind to be on doors and to have our volunteers and specifically, you know, local volunteers, people talking to their neighbors out in the community. And that started early, that started immediately. I think Arvind started knocking doors in early March, even though we did not have a competitive primary and knocked almost daily up until the end of the election. He ended up knocking just about 32 doors shy of 13,000 doors over the course of the election. Well, that's that's just a lot to to process and digest. That's that's some raw knuckles. Um, And especially in March, uh, I'm sure it's cold. But it... um, It's why I wanted to start the discussion, Ben, with you kind of scene setting, because this isn't necessarily uh, row houses, uh, you know, and you're walking driveways. I mean, you're 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 getting your steps in with with the these townships you're talking about. Yeah, he lost several pant sizes over the course over the course of this race. Yeah, it was it was uh, brutal. Went through pairs of shoes. I mean, 
all of our volunteers really just stepped it up. That was what was important to me. Um, I just, I'd watched races where they had tried to paint the opposing candidate as an outsider. Um, and it was really important for me, you know, to have Arvind introduce himself as, as a neighbor and as a doctor who worked in those communities. And there's really nothing, there is nothing better for a campaign than the candidate on the doors. And I think that was true of like state house races across Pennsylvania, that the, there was a huge focus on the candidate being out and knocking doors and meeting people. And I think that's in part one of the reasons we had such Democrats had such a successful Tuesday. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how this is quantified. I guess you and fellow campaign managers are putting data into some sort of central system, but I know it has been a talking point since Democrats, uh, first had that press conference by the Liberty Bell announcing taking the state house and then the dust settling from the Montgomery County and Bucks races. Is it, I think cumulatively, it's like north of three quarters of a million doors were knocked? I'm not not sure. I think it was over a million overall from the state house. And I mean, that just squares with everything I saw in like local races. Um, The other one, you know, we, another, I think another factor that informed how we we ran our race was looking at 2018 in the North Hills, where there was a lot of a uh, there was a lot of similarities with this cycle. Uh, Lindsay Williams was up. She ran against Jeremy Schaefer, who ended up running against Chris Deluzio. Lori Mizgorski ran against the who was um, Lindsay Williams's Republican opponent in the state Senate. Ran against Betsy Monroe, who was the candidate I first worked for. One of the things we saw in that race was there was definitely an effort to divide Democrats and have them kind of run each against each other on the ballot. And I think it was important for us, uh, the campaign managers who were working in the North Hills to you know present a strong ticket and to really work together to make sure that we were, you know, doing everything we could to have like a strong ticket all the way down the ballot. I, I do want to touch on that as we wind down. But beforehand, when you're looking at a six figure budget and a state house race with, I mean, what, what is that? It's less than 70,000 constituents. So maybe what, yeah. 40,000 voters. I mean, what, what else were you taking out television ads? I mean, the- oh yeah. So we ended up raising about one. So there was a lot of television, obviously, by the the federal and statewide candidates. So we ended up raising about one point three million dollars for our oh my race. Gosh. Yes, one point three uh, million dollars. That's incredible. One point three million dollars. A lot of that was spent on television, on mail, on digital ads. Really, we just did not want to leave anything on the table. What 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 did your opponent have? I think our opponent ended up raising about. 800,000 between so this was like a $2 million plus endeavor. That's yes. Yes. That must be close to a record for a Pennsylvania state house seat. I think it is. I'd have to look through the financial, you know, disclosures. I definitely think for at least for Democrats in Allegheny County, we had the most expensive state house. All right. So then as you alluded to it right next door is another incredibly competitive race, Mandy Steele's Fox Chapel-based statehouse race. You have Chris DeLucio's congressional uh, race. Sure. And then certainly we have the U.S. Senate and governor's races. So I mean, to what extent is there daily coordination or is it just kind of ad hoc, you know, super so, focused on your turf um, and what you're hearing directly from voters at the doors versus kind of statewide messaging and themes? So I think, you know, we shared an office with State Senator Lindsey Williams in McCandless. So we, you know, had some insight there. There was 
weekly field coordination planning among all the campaigns within Senator Williams's uh, district. We so talked. Was, was this this state house district is entirely in her state senate district? About fifty six percent. So McCandless and part of Hampton, and then you know it's also it's actually in three separate state senate districts. Uh, oh wow! One, so it's in the thirty seventh, which is represented by Devlin Robinson, and I think uh, what is what is Wayne Fontana's? It's either the it's like oh I want to say the forty second maybe. But I think I think this uh, yeah the, the state senator Williams. We're not talking about Connie Williams, uh, the previous state senator from Montgomery County. But Lindsay, what well, this is this is fascinating. What happened to her? Just remind listeners what happened to her in 2018. So she had an opponent, Jeremy Schaefer, who ran for Congress this year, who beat a sitting state senator, um, Randy Velakovich, and she won by very narrow margin. I think it was around 700 votes. And then the Republicans threatened not to seat her. So this was a seat they were really trying for this time spent a lot of money on negative advertisements. Yeah. Four, four, four years ago, this time of year, it was this bizarre saga that I guess yeah. 700 votes is, I'm not good at math, but it's larger than, than one vote. <laughs> so yeah, for some reason it wasn't a win and they didn't seat her. They, there was a, they were trying to make a case about residency requirements at the time. And eventually they just dropped it. It just was, it just, it felt like sour grapes. And this year, you know, they came back hard against her. And I, I think that was, you know, watching that race in 2018 was one of the reasons I think all the campaign managers, Mandy Steele's, Lindsay's, Allison Duncan, who was running in the 28th, um, which is kind of a band across Allegheny County and some of the folks in the city really wanted to, you know, stick together and make sure that we were not, you know, we were all rowing in the same direction, essentially. You know, we weren't trying to poach volunteers from each other. We were doing work that was like mutually supportive and that, you know, we were running efficient races. There's only so much money. There's only so much volunteer time to go around. There's only so much work that you can do. And by kind of like splitting it up and, you know, coordinating it, it definitely, I think it definitely makes a difference. It's hard to, it's hard to quantify, but you can just like feel some of those like uh, synergistic energies on the ground. Was there, because uh, I know this has happened in past cycles, from super blue neighborhoods in the city of Pittsburgh, where there weekend volunteers who'd get in their car and go 20 miles north uh, to help you in super purple neighborhoods? This is like kind it, of a was fact. It really people who lived in the community just coming and getting a clipboard and going out onto turf. So this is like, you know, a fascinating dynamic that's taking place in the background as well. Um, and one of the things I... I find super interesting about Allegheny County politics is unlike, you know, the Southeast, we don't really border a lot of blue states with a lot of, you know, non-competitive elections. So we don't get tons of out-of-state volunteers coming. When I first started working in elections in 2018, we had a lot of people come out from the city to volunteer in races. But as, you know, the time has gone on, those folks have gotten a lot more involved in rebuilding the, the committees within their own districts and knocking doors in the city and making sure we get turnout. And the committees in the suburbs have really stepped up. And a lot of the volunteers are coming from those committees and from those suburbs. So the answer to your question is, yes, there were people coming out to knock. But really, I think the the baton is just starting to be passed to um, all the folks in the suburbs who really want to play an active role in these campaigns. And I, I think you're seeing the results of that in a, that Allegheny County has really 
I think, outperformed the state, even in off-year elections, in terms of Democratic turnout and performance. And it's because all of these folks in local committees have had a lot of experience under pressure organizing and getting much better at turning out their voters. Well, I wanted to wind down on that note, Ben, because the open county executive race is already beginning. I venture to say it's going to be a seven-figure, if not eight-figure uh, primary. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, as you look at everything that's happened, and, and for that matter, you look you know, granularity at, at the data to the extent you have it, what does your crystal ball tell you uh, about how these trends between city, North Hills, South Hills, I mean, how's it going to affect the primary race for exec? You know, we are seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of the new Democratic registrations happen out in the suburbs. But, you know, the city is still going to play a huge role in our primaries. I think it's going to really depend on how many candidates ultimately jump in and where, you know, where they reside within the county and how, how, how good of a job they do in engaging constituencies outside the county. <laughs> I wish I had a clear answer for you, but we are kind of moving into like a new era in allegating county politics where the, where the old kind of factions are falling apart and we're kind of seeing what's being rebuilt in their place. And I think a lot of it will start with this exec race. Um, Rich Fitzgerald has been in office for, he's going to be in office for 12 years. So this is a kind of like a new opportunity for these groups to kind of like uh, plant a flag. Well, Ben, I really appreciate your time. I would like to think that Dr. Vetcat's going to be in uh, office for many years. And, and that's uh, largely because of uh, the work you were doing, the countless hours uh, over this summer. And uh, yeah, excited to stay in close touch. I think listeners are going to enjoy uh, uh, your your insight and perspective as this county executive race uh, heats up. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Take a minute and leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform. Please also consider following us on social media for updates and announcements regarding future episodes and new guests. You're political, so I am sure that you're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. We are too at PA Political Podcast. Visit our website, papoliticalpodcast.org, and send us your feedback about this episode and suggestions on future guests. Until next week. Thank you.